You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. This week for me was full of many, many stuffs and things. I went to the theater, saw a really funny play, did Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios, did some semi-illegitimate backlot joy rides in a golf cart, and just all around drained my social batteries. This week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Bottoms and The Nun 2. Bottoms might be the first film I've seen where I've realized that I'm aging out of certain kinds of content other than like the obvious ones like Blue's Clues or some shit. Don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was very creative, but it's definitely not made for older millennials and up. It's definitely got that Gen Z like energy to it because it felt like people who maybe watched Glee and horror films too young and then combined that together and made bottoms. And while I'm definitely a member of the latter group, seeing the horror movies too young, I'm definitely not one of the former. I was a full-grown adult when that show started coming out. But yeah, Bottoms is violent, quirky, funny. It's culty as hell. And it is a film that is going to be a staple at high school girl sleepovers for years and years and years and years to come. It is, it's going to be around. And then The Nun 2. I actually saw The Nun 2 a month or so ago because I had a friend who worked on it. So this wasn't the first time that I saw it, but it was a much better experience to behold because I was with someone who actually likes horror movies. My my friend who worked on it does not. And um, it didn't have said friend's name slapped across it to prevent pirating. So it's a lot more enjoyable when you don't have to look through your friend's name for two hours. I don't think that's uh, surprising to anybody, but that's, that's how that uh, works. Overall, The Nun 2 is a pretty standard horror movie, I'd say on par with the first one in quality. And I did like the first one for what it's worth. I recognized it for what it was. It's a mid-horror movie. Basically, if you're a fan of The Conjuring universe thus far, you're going to like this movie. If you haven't, this is not going to tip the needle either way for you. It was fun in a theater, though, I will say that. Strike updates. The WGA and AMPTP are going back to have discussions next week. So this week in terms of episode release. So maybe we'll have some updates next week, but nothing really happened this past one. And now on to this week's topic. This week, the life and career of Grace Kelly, also known as Princess Grace of Monaco. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. But if he's as helpless as you say... Oh, he's not helpless now. He has you, Mr. Dodd. He has to be watched and handled. You're the only one that can do that. I didn't know it before now. Well, then maybe you've learned something. The man needs you. He has to be watched. You take on the job with waving banners and ten hours later hand it back. You're telling me he has to be watched? He has to be nursed and guarded and coddled, but not by me. I'm going back to New York to the peace and comfort of a quiet room. 
For the first time in years, I won't have to wonder where he is. George, He'll be in the strong, sober hands of Bernie Dodd. George. Can you stand him up on his feet again? Because that's where all my prayers have gone. To see that one holy hour when he can stand alone again. Listen, and I might forgive even you, Mr. Dodd, if you can keep him up long enough for me to get out from under. Grace Patricia Kelly was born on November 12, 1929, in Philadelphia, the youngest of five of an affluent Pennsylvania couple. Her father, John B. Kelly Jr., had won three Olympic medals for sculling, and by the time Grace was born, owned a successful brickwork contracting company like his father before him. John's brother was a vaudeville star, and another of Grace's uncles was a Pulitzer Prize-winning dramatist, screenwriter, and director named George. If that wasn't enough, her mother Margaret had taught physical education at the University of Pennsylvania and had been the first woman to coach women's athletics there. She also modeled when she was younger. To top it off, she also descended from various German noble family lines. So all in all, this was a very highly pedigreed family. While the majority of her siblings would tend to be a little bit more on the athletic side as far as interests would go, from a very young age, Grace would be a big fan of playing pretend and make-believe. It seemed like Grace might be following more in the footsteps of her uncle George. Grace and her siblings grew up in a small, close-knit Catholic community. While attending a Catholic girls' school, she modeled at charity events with her mother and sisters like any good society girl should. At the age of 12, Grace started acting formally and played the lead in Don't Feed the Animals at her school's production of it. In May 1947, Grace graduated from high school. Her math grades left a lot to be desired, which meant she couldn't get into college. So, despite her parents' misgivings, Grace decided to pursue her childhood dreams of becoming an actress. Her father was probably the more unhappy of the parents with this decision, as he reportedly viewed acting as, quote, a slim cut above Streetwalker. Sure, his siblings appreciated that assessment. Since either of her parents thought anything would actually come out of Grace trying to become an actress, they ultimately supported her decision so that she would just get it out of her system. In New York City, Grace supported herself financially by modeling, signing with the Walter Thornton Model Agency the year she got to the city. Grace would appear on the cover of several magazines while also doing commercials for things like bug spray and cigarettes. Her girl-next-door vibe was the perfect look to convince men to purchase anything she basically modeled with. In 1949, Grace was accepted into the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York using a scene from her Uncle George's play The Torchbearers as her audition piece. The school had actually already filled their class for that year or semester or whatever it was, but she'd gotten an audition because Uncle George kind of intervened. But Grace worked hard, so kind of balances out. But you see, everybody, nepotism is a grand tradition in entertainment. We've just been paying attention to it more in the last three years or whatever it's been. After graduating from the Academy, Grace made her professional theater debut in her uncle's play, The Torchbearer. And soon after that, television producer Delbert Mann cast Grace as the lead in Bethel Meriday, which was part of the Philco Television Playhouse, which was her first of scores of TV theater plays, which was a huge thing in early broadcasting. They'd basically, the actors would perform like a live one hour version of a play. And that was kind of 
like a thing that people did to entertain themselves. There's a bunch in the Criterion Collection. I've watched a few. It's interesting. Impressed by her work in The Father, which was Grace's Broadway debut, director Henry Hathaway offered Grace a small role in the film 14 Hours, which released in 1951. In the film, Grace plays a young woman contemplating divorce. While it failed to make much of an impression, following the release of the film, people were enamored enough with Grace that they actually founded the Grace Kelly Fan Club. Also, while shooting the film, Grace had been noticed on the set by Gary Cooper, who'd been visiting. But despite all this attention by fellow performers and moviegoers alike, Grace's performance in 14 Hours was largely ignored by critics. So she continued to work in the theater and on television, despite the fact that many thought that her soft-spoken voice lacked the, quote, vocal horsepower needed for the stage. But... Grace had no problem putting in the work and diligently studied her characters and took acting classes and just had a grasp on any material she was hired to perform in. All that work soon made her one of the most popular actors in the stock company she was a part of. It was basically like a corral of actors that producers and directors would draw from in New York. While she was off performing in Denver, Colorado, producer Stanley Kramer decided that he might want her for a role in a film co-starring Gary Cooper after seeing a photograph of Grace from her agent. Kramer had been searching for an unknown for this part, and he believed that Grace would fit the bill quite nicely. Grace was flown out to Los Angeles to meet with Kramer, who ultimately cast her. The film was High Noon, which released in 1952, and was shot in the late summer and early fall of 1951. Grace played Cooper's character's young bride. High Noon garnered four Academy Awards and has since been ranked by some reviewers among the best films of all time. As for Grace, however, both Kramer and Grace weren't terribly thrilled with her overall performance in the film, and like 14 Hours, it didn't do anything to establish Grace in Hollywood. After shooting High Noon, Grace returned to New York City and took private acting lessons. She believed that if she could make her eyes quote-unquote shine amongst other things, also refining her voice a little bit, which people found not quite what it was beyond it not being very loud, then she would truly be the level of actress that she needed to be. In the meantime, she performed in a few plays, though not on Broadway, as well as several television broadcasts of plays again. She also screen-tested for the film Taxi in the spring of 1952. Director John Ford noticed Grace from that screen test, and she was flown out to Los Angeles to audition for another role in September 1952. The film was called Magombo, which she was cast in, and with that came a seven-year contract with MGM starting at $850 a week. Grace signed the deal under two conditions— First, that once out of every two years, she was going to be allowed time off to work in the theater. And second, that she was able to live in New York City instead of having to relocate to Hollywood. In November 1952, Grace shot Magambo in Nairobi. She would later state that the only reason she agreed to do the film was because it was being directed by John Ford, it co-starred Clark Gable, and shooting on location meant an all-expenses-paid trip to Africa. The film was released in 1953 and had a successful go at the box office. This time, critics took notice of the actress, calling her, quote, a star in the making. Others agreed, as Grace won a Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actress for the role and also received her first Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. 
After the success of Magambo, Grace starred in the television play The Way of an Eagle before being cast in the film adaptation of the Broadway play Dial M for Murder, which was being directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Grace played the role of a wealthy wife of a retired professional tennis player. Out of this, Hitchcock became one of Grace's mentors during the last years of her career. She was subsequently loaned by MGM to work in three Hitchcock films, which would become arguably her most critically acclaimed and recognized work. So loyal was she to Hitchcock that she turned down the Eva Marie Saint role in On the Waterfront, which would earn Saint an Oscar, to play Lisa Fremont in Rear Window. Upon the film's opening in October 1954, Grace was again praised. Critics remarked on the casting, commenting on the, quote, earthly quality to the relationship between Stewart and Miss Kelly, as, quote, both do a fine job of the picture's acting demands. Speaking of her co-star in the film, Jimmy Stewart, he often sang the praises of his co-star and said in interviews that Grace would wow not only the crew, but Hitchcock as well with her natural sense for how to move in a scene and how to deliver lines. He also claimed that her character climbing the fire escape to get into the sus neighbor's apartment in the film was actually improved by Grace. After Rear Window, it was pretty clear that Grace Kelly had made her acting dreams come true. This success, however, made it difficult for her to return to her beloved New York. Grace next played the role of Bing Crosby's long-suffering wife, Georgie Elgin, in The Country Girl, which released in 1954. Already familiar with the play, Grace was keen to do the part. In order to do it, though, MGM would once again have to lend Grace to Paramount Pictures, which was Hitchcock's distributor at the time, and they were a little bit tired of Paramount basically reaping the benefits of their star. But Grace was adamant and shot green fire for MGM basically as a compromise for them to let her go. And she really hated the picture and complained about it vocally and often behind the scenes. For good measure, Grace had also threatened the studio, saying that if she wasn't allowed to do the country girl, she would pack her bags and return to New York City for good. So MGM eventually relented. Out of all of that as well, Grace also negotiated a more lucrative contract thanks to her recent success. In The Country Girl, Grace played the wife of a washed-up alcoholic singer who becomes torn emotionally between her two lovers, played by Bing Crosby, who played the husband character, and William Holden. The role would gain Grace an Academy Award for Best Actress at just 24 years of age. After shooting four films in a row, Grace flew to the French Riviera to work on her third and final film for Hitchcock, To Catch a Thief. Location shooting would also take place in the Principality of Monaco. The palace was chosen as a location for Grace to do a promotional photo shoot for the film. By the by, the photo shoot was a long time coming. Before coming to Monaco, Grace had been part of the U.S. delegation for the 1955 Cannes Film Festival. While there, she was invited to participate in some kind of photo session with Prince Rainier III, the sovereign of the Principality of Monaco, and widely considered to be Europe's most eligible bachelor. After a series of delays, she met at his palace on May 6, 1955. This meeting garnered an insane amount of media attention. Up to this point, Grace had dated, but not incredibly seriously, and privately she had told her siblings that she wanted the husband, kids, etc., but of course her work was keeping her quite busy. This meeting between the two made people speculate wildly as to what might be going on betwixt the two. 
Meanwhile, Grace next starred in the film The Swan from 1956, which saw the actress in a weirdly prophetic role. Based on the play of the same name, Grace played Princess Alexandra, a royal urged into marrying her cousin so her family might regain a throne that had been taken by Napoleon. Grace just, I guess, fit the part of princess a little too well. After a year-long low-key courtship containing, quote, a good deal of rational appraisal on both sides, Grace Kelly and Prince Rainier III married on April 19, 1956. Grace would keep her link to her past with a dual citizenship between the U.S. and Monaco. But becoming a princess meant that Grace had to retire from acting. Grace's last film was 1956's High Society, which came out three months after her marriage. In the film, Grace actually wears her real engagement ring from her prince. Grace's little shown comedic side is on full display in this film, something that was never seen publicly afterward, but Grace had actually really good comedic timing. Ironically, had she continued acting after that role, she very likely would have had Hollywood in the palm of her hand. Grace's least favorite part of her acting job had been dealing with the press, and unfortunately for her, Princess Grace was going to have to regularly face the full breadth of the international press. They and some citizens of Monaco weren't exactly thrilled to see the prince marry a rich American actress. Several more of these people wanted to see her fail at this new role. But Princess Grace was once a Kelly, and the Kellys were a competitive lot. She knew about the naysayers, of course, and like every time she'd come up against opposition before, Grace threw herself into her new role as fervently as she'd ever done with acting. But first, Princess Grace gave birth to the couple's first child, Princess Caroline, on January 23rd, 1957, nine months and four days after their wedding. Their next child and the heir to the throne was Prince Albert, who was born on March 14, 1958, and their youngest was Princess Stephanie, who was born on February 1st, 1965. Now retired from acting, Princess Grace threw herself into her duties as a princess, learned French, which was the official language of Monaco, and became involved in philanthropic work. As princess consort, she became the president of the Red Cross of Monaco and the patron of Rainbow Coalition Children, an orphanage which was run by former dancer Josephine Baker. She also hosted an annual Christmas celebration for orphaned children in Monaco. Then, she served as president of the Garden Club of Monaco and president of the Organizing Committee of the International Arts Foundation. If that wasn't enough, Grace founded a Monaco-based nonprofit organization, which is recognized by the UN, after she witnessed the plight of Vietnamese children in 1963. The organization still exists and currently has cooperative branches across Europe, Asia, South America, and Africa. Princess Grace was also active in improving the arts institutions of Monaco, forming the Princess Grace Foundation in 1964 to support local artisans. She wanted Monaco to become an arts and cultural hub. In 1975, Grace helped found the Princess Grace Academy, the resident school of the Monte Carlo Ballet, where both her daughters would one day study. The prince and princess would regularly visit the States to see her family and friends, and Grace firmly held on to her American roots. She even hosted a yearly American Week in Monaco, where guests would play baseball and eat ice cream. The palace also celebrated American Thanksgiving. 
While she'd officially retired from acting, Princess Grace never meant for this to actually be a permanent move. Hitchcock offered her the lead in his upcoming film, Marnie, in 1962. She wanted to do it, but public outcry in Monaco against their princess playing a kleptomaniac forced her to reconsider. Several other offers trickled in, and in 1977, she actually did return to the arts in the form of a series of readings for the documentary The Children of Theater Street, which was about young dancers in Leningrad. In April 1980, she published My Book of Flowers with Gwen Robbins, showing her off her talent with floral aesthetics, symbolism, and flower pressing. Grace and Rainier also worked together on a 33-minute independent film entitled Rearranged in 1979, which got the attention of ABC TV executives in America in 1982 after its premiere in Monaco. The executives wanted the film to be extended to an hour for them to broadcast it in the States. But before more scenes could be shot, Grace passed away and the film was never released, nor was it ever shown publicly again. So let's get into the bummer stuff. On September 13th, 1982, Her Serene Highness, Princess Grace of Monaco, suffered a mild stroke while driving back to Monaco from her country home. As a result, she lost control of the car and drove off a steep winding road and down a 120-foot mountainside. Her daughter Stephanie was in the passenger seat, and she tried but failed to regain control of the car. Princess Grace was taken to the Monaco Hospital with brain and thorax injuries, as well as a fractured femur. She died the following day at 10.55 p.m. after Rainier decided to turn off her life support. She was only 52 years old. Stephanie survived the accident, suffering a light concussion and a hairline fracture of a cervical vertebra. Princess Grace's funeral was held on September 18, 1982, and she was buried in the Grimaldi family vault. Over 400 people attended, including Diana, Princess of Wales. Rainier, who did not remarry, was buried alongside her after his death in 2005. Grace Kelly's time in Hollywood was a short one, just about five years, but her influence on the history of film is greater than some who worked in the industry for ten times as long. A princess, an actress, a girl from Philly, Grace Kelly was a beauty and a talent and a humanitarian for the ages. I just want to know what you are doing here the day before my wedding. Business. I've become a distinguished composer since we broke up. Yeah, they need a little help here, so I heeded the call of duty. Don't pretend with me, Dexter. You deliberately planned this festival to conflict with my wedding. It's a shabby, vindictive gesture. Ooh, harsh words. Well, let's be honest. I'll admit it. I'm still in love with you. I don't want you to get married again because I still think you can become a wonderful woman. Thank you. I haven't the same high hopes for you. Well, I don't want to become a wonderful woman. Oh, isn't it enough you almost spoiled my life without spoiling my wedding? I didn't try to spoil your life, Sam. Oh, and stop calling me Sam. I'm sure you didn't try to spoil mine, but you were calling on the shots. You were dictating the sort of a fellow you wanted me to be. With your background and taste and intelligence, you could have become a serious composer or a diplomat or or anything you wanted to be. And what have you become? A jukebox hero. (laughs) Is that bad? Oh, Dexter, be satisfied and let me alone. Go away. Go away and stay away. I tried to. 
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. When I remember, I am posting all the ones for this month except for next week's, like in the next 48 hours. I'm, I've am i been really bad about it and I apologize. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a Letterboxd account, which I do keep up with, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. The original K Wu, thank you so much for the lovely review that you left of the podcast on Apple Podcast app. Is that what they call it? I felt like you got me and my whole vibe so well. Like it felt like a very like personal like observation of just me as a person, not just like the version of me that I present on this podcast. So much so that I actually asked my friends if one of them wrote it and just had a screen name that I didn't recognize. I feel very seen. I'm very appreciative. And thank you so much. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee. I actually haven't had coffee yet today because I've been very wired because I'm doing a fun Photoshop project at the moment. I'd say what it was, but I found out in the last couple of weeks that the person it's for actually listens to this every once in a while. So I can't say anything until it's done. I'm very excited about it. It's very cute. <laughs> I've also got merch. Check it out with a link in the show notes. Next week, we're wrapping up our look at 50s actresses by diving into the life of Audrey Hepburn. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. <laughs>